Good evening. It is good to be together. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us. If you would be open your Bibles to Galatians, the fourth chapter. We won't have slides tonight, but we'll be studying primarily out of the book of Galatians in our mailbox series. So I encourage you to open up. And if you need to borrow a Bible out of the pews, it'll be on 1,035. 1,035. We are continually excited about the various opportunities that we have to reach souls and a let's start talking meeting will meet immediately after services tonight uh, that is the group that wants to learn more about going to work uh, for at least a few weeks and possibly even six weeks this summer and if you want to learn more about that the meeting will be in the library in room 100 ab Go back that way and we'll point it to you after services. Uh, I think it's 100 AB, which is right behind the library. Also, we are thankful uh, that we've had a wonderful weekend. Brandon Adcock did a tremendous job at the men's breakfast Saturday morning, and we're thankful for all that cooked and made that available. We're thankful for the tremendous job that he did in sharing and proclaiming a challenging message from, from God's word. And we appreciate him and his life and what he continually does. Also, uh, I have been uh, made aware of the fact of really just how challenging communication is. As a matter of fact, I'm usually made aware of that every Sunday. But first service, I used just a couple of terms that really brought a lot of clarity. And then I failed to use those terms second service. So if you were in second service this morning, it might help if I clarify our contribution that we are setting the goal to try to bring in enough uh, gifts that we would be able to, to build a 60 to $70,000 uh, purchase a property and build a building or buy a building. For us to be able to do that, when there are two collections next Sunday morning, the first collection will be our regular collection, and our weekly budget is about 34500 So that'll be the first collection. The second offering needs to be double the first offering. And so we would need, upon average, for everybody to give twice their weekly offering on the second offering. So you would be giving three times your normal amount. Yes, that's a huge sacrifice for people that are already giving generously. And that's why we said, it's not a, a plea to make anyone feel guilty if you can't do it. That is simply a way that it can be done. And hopefully several of us can give more than that. And hopefully there'll be some that can dig deeper. You know, I think about in the New Testament, I think about the beginning of the church. You remember one of the first activities we see the church doing? Remember they went out and they sold their property and they came and they laid the money at the elders' feet. Surely there's some things that we can do. Surely there's some sacrifices that we can make that we could some way give very generously to make a difference for our brothers and sisters in Christ there. Uh, not only now, but this truly could be an investment that should go, continue to give back until the Lord comes again. And, and what an opportunity we have in that. So be prayerful about it. We, we recognize that's, that's a huge uh, challenge. It's a huge sacrifice. And uh, we'll let God's will be done. 
Uh, we're God's people. We have a heart for God. We have a heart for his work and whatever his will uh, that will be done. That's what we'll be satisfied with and very thankful for our next Sunday morning. In the mailbox series, we're in the middle of the book of Galatians, and it's a very interesting study. And even though several of you on Wednesday nights have already been in the midst of it and others that are reading along, you're in the midst of it. If I could, I'd like to remind you of just a few basic things about the book of Galatians, because when we dive into the middle of Galatians, the fourth chapter in just a moment, if we take a time to set up why the book of Galatians was even written in the first place, then it'll help those verses that we read make complete sense. I'd like you to think back in Paul's life when he was on his first missionary journey, and you can read about this in Acts the 13th and the 14th chapter. He went through that area of Galatia and he proclaimed the gospel. He went into cities like Derby or Iconium or Lystra. And when he went into those places, he had great success. As a matter of fact, when you read at the end of Acts the 14th chapter, you see that he came back to his home base. Remember that was Antioch. He came back to his home base in Antioch and he gave a missions report. It's in there, read it, he really did. It tells that they gathered the church together and he gave a report about it. Now, just try to imagine what that would be like. It doesn't tell us exactly what was said in that report, but I can imagine Paul getting excited. I can imagine him saying, we went through the, the area of Galatia and, and there were a few Jews that were converted to Christianity. There were a lot of Gentiles that were converted. Brethren, there were multitudes of Christians when we left that area. They are on fire for God. And you can imagine that excitement that he would have had. But then he receives word later that they're beginning to leave Christ. False teachers had come in and it was a sect of Jews that actually believed somewhat in Christianity, but they believed that the only way that you could come to Christ was that first you had to practice Judaism. And so one of the tenets of the mark of identity of Judaism was circumcision. But then also some of the characteristics were special holy days and, and, and festivals and the such. And so what he found out was that whenever Paul left town, the false teachers came in and they said, that same passion you had for Paul and his teaching, we want you to have that same kind of passion for our teaching. And so they began apparently to belittle Paul, to discredit him, to try to prove that he was not a true apostle, most likely. And therefore they could get them to follow their teaching. Now, if you want to put this into a biblical perspective, just for interest's sake, in Acts the 15th chapter, we have the New Testament leaders, the apostles and the elders of the church of Jerusalem coming together. Now, if you know that chapter well, you immediately know what we're talking about here. What was the purpose of their coming together? Because people were teaching this. And Paul was saying, we're gonna bring this to Jerusalem, we're gonna have a meeting, and we're gonna put an end to this idea that you have to go back and mix Judaism with Christianity in order to be right. Now, there are debates about when the book of Galatia was written. A lot of scholars, a lot of people believe that it's the earliest book that Paul wrote. It very well could have been written in 48 AD. And what is interesting is what we read about in Acts the 15th chapter would have taken place in AD 49. So you see what happens is the problem that was addressed in Acts the 15th chapter very likely was being addressed in the book of Galatia to the people of Galatia 
But either they didn't take note of it or the problem had spread far beyond Galatia. And so Acts the 15th chapter is handling this very same problem that probably was really gaining ground and momentum. And so what we're studying tonight, even though in principle, there's probably not a lot of people here that are struggling with whether or not well to go back and pick up the old law and mix with the new law. Brethren, in the religious world today, there are a lot of people that do struggle with that. There, I would go as far as to say, most of your coworkers that you work around that call themselves Christians that are part of the denomination, most of them believe that you mix parts of the old law with parts of the new law. And the book of Galatians is written to say no. You can't do that. Listen, if a man is faithful to his wife, what does that mean? He's faithful to her and also another woman? No. You understand clearly that when a man is faithful to his wife, he is faithful to her and none other. That's exactly what's being taught in the book of Galatians. That's exactly what is taught in Romans, the seventh chapter. That's exactly what is sprinkled throughout the other epistles. Why? Because the New Testament Christians were struggling with that just like New Testament Christians today, just like those in the first century. And so if what we're talking about in that sense, you're not clear on for your understanding, for your biblical foundation that you need to build your faith, you need to have a real clear understanding of the difference in the old covenant and the new covenant. They apparently had a pretty good understanding of the difference of the old law and Christianity that had been introduced to them until Paul left town. And the Judaizing teachers came in and they clouded the waters for them and they were pulling them away. And so the result was Paul writes this letter of Galatians. So why does he write it? Well, we've already implied it as we did this, this little introduction here, but let's just state a few things real clearly. He wrote it to help them understand that their approach to Christianity through Judaism was absolutely wrong. It wasn't that that's not a great idea, it's that is 100% wrong. The second reason he wrote, and this wasn't from an arrogant spirit, the second reason he wrote was to make sure they understand he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Listen, if they discredit his apostleship, he then no longer has authority to go in to speak on behalf of God in a credible way. And so he's trying to restore his credibility for the gospel's sake. It wasn't about Paul puffing out his chest and saying, everybody, I want you to believe that I'm an apostle. It's for the furtherance of the kingdom. But then what's also interesting is time you come to like the fifth and the sixth chapter. He also writes this book because he wants to challenge them to realize that if you have found liberty in Jesus Christ, it calls you to a high standard of living. And remember the fifth chapter, that great Galatians, the fifth chapter, don't live any longer by the works of the flesh. Instead, be led by the spirit. And if so, your life ought to be producing the fruit of the spirit. And so there's also within this book that is great proof and a great plea. There's also the great challenge that says live the Christian life. So let's jump right in to the fourth chapter. And I'd like for you to read with me in verse eight. And I'd like for you to think about, and of course this isn't exactly the way he says it, but I wanna make a few statements to you tonight that as we make those statements, we'll go in and read part of this paragraph and see why we're making that statement. First statement I'd like to say to you tonight is Paul would be saying to them, I'm afraid for you, you ought to be afraid too. Okay, I'm afraid for you, you ought to be afraid for you too. Why, why would he say that? Let's look here beginning at verse eight. But then indeed, 
when you did not know God, you served those by which by nature are not gods. You see, before Paul came into Galatia, they worshiped idols. Verse nine, but now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Now, what would those elements be? It'd be things under the old covenant, like you observe days and months and seasons and years. And he concludes this thought by saying, I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. So see the first verse, he says, remember, before I met you, you served idols. But then after you were brought to God, why is it that now you have turned back and they're not necessarily turning back to idols right now, but they are turning back to other things that are beggarly, things that are so much less than God, so much less than Christ. And so he's saying, why? Why would you do that? And then he makes this strong statement. I am afraid for you. You ever seen someone start down the wrong path? And the only thing you can think is, I'm afraid for them. Why? Because they're an addict. You know what happens down the pathway for addicts? They destroy peace in their life. They destroy relationships. They destroy uh, uh, just, just holiness and happiness. They destroy so much in their life. And so here's somebody that's watching somebody right at the beginning of the path of addiction. And this person says, I'm afraid for you. Or maybe you're saying goodbye to someone who is driving their vehicle into a blizzard. And you wave goodbye and you honestly say, I, I'm afraid for you. Why would you say that? It's dangerous to drive in a blizzard. Do you see what Paul is saying here? He says, you're leaving Christ. I'm afraid for you. Listen, we can't find any peace if we know that our life is not with Christ. We shouldn't be able to find any peace for someone we love if we know their life is not right with Christ. We should be able to naturally and honestly say, I'm afraid for you. You don't know Christ. The Hebrew writer in the 10th chapter, he'd say in verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of God. When you're not ready to meet your God, it is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. In 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, that end of the chapter that we studied this morning, the paragraph right above it talks about in verse 10 that everybody's gonna stand on the day of judgment. And Paul said, it's because of the terror of the Lord that we persuade men. Paul, how do you look at the day of judgment? He says, I look at the day of judgment with great boldness and, 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 and with a calmness and a peace, unless you're not saved. And he says, then it's terror. Then I'm afraid for you. Then it is a horrible thing. Do you see what he's doing? He's writing to people that he loved. He's writing to people that he saw them come to Christ. And now he knows that they have left Christ. And he says, I'm afraid for you. And you ought to be afraid for you too. But the second thing that I'd like for you to see tonight is that he says, and he doesn't say this exactly, but let's study this and just think about this. It's almost as if he's saying, you love me. 
and I love you too. That's an interesting thing to think about here, and especially when we put it in the context of this chapter before we close this lesson. But read, let's read together at verse 12. We're still in Galatians, the fourth chapter in verse 12. Brethren, and, and by the way, there's, there's several little phrases in these verses we're about to read that scholars do not know exactly what Paul meant by that. It doesn't mean that it pertains to something about our salvation that we don't know. It just means that he's making little vague remarks that if you would have been the people of Galatia, you would have known exactly what he was talking about because he's referring to some things that happened when he was first with them. And we just don't have all those details of the things that happened when he's first with them. But we can still get very much the, the, the principle of the message here. And let's look in verse 12. Brethren, I urge you, to become like me. And I, and, and the King James adds the translation, became like you. That's italicized. Maybe it should stay though. Brethren, I urge you to become like me for I like you. Well, what does he mean? I want you to become like me. You remember he was one that was very much a part of Judaism. Remember he was the one when his name was Saul, he persecuted Christians and he left all that behind to go back to Christ. That very well could be what he's saying when he's saying, I want you to become like me. I used to go back to the old covenant stuff, but I'm not anymore. Become like me. And then the idea, perhaps what he means when he says, and you like me, and I like you. It very well could be that he's saying at that time, it's a, it's a way to say, and we'd be on the same page together. He remembers not that long ago when they were on the same page. He came into town and they worshiped idols. And he believed in Christ. And before he left town, they were like him and he was like them. They all believed in Christ. Now he leaves town and they go over into the idea of the old covenant to get to Christ. And he's saying, wait a minute. Can't we all just come back on the same page? What's that page going to be? It's going to be Jesus Christ. Can't we come back together in this? But now notice this. He closes it by saying, verse 12, you've not injured me at all. Now I want you to think in their mind's eye, it would have been very easy for Paul to think he's trying to play this competitive role with the false teachers. Okay. I want you to picture this setting. Here are false teachers that roll into the town and the way that they're able to pull these people over to their teaching is to discredit Paul and to sweet talk them. And so now Paul is writing them saying, no, no, come back. But notice, he doesn't want them to believe they're coming back so it would look like Paul won. Ha <laughs> ha, false teachers, you didn't win. I've got them back. And he's saying, look, this isn't a personal matter of I want to be one up on the false teachers. He's wanting them to come back to Christ. It's not a personal matter. It's about your soul. Listen. Anytime a teacher or a preacher or someone that you look up to spiritually tries to make your walk with Jesus Christ about them, you better beware of them. You and I need to hide behind the cross. I want to believe, and I know any of us can struggle with pride and all that, but I tell you from the depths of my heart, I want people to see Christ. I don't mind at all if they don't see David Shannon. I'd take it as a compliment if somebody said, my preacher helped me learn a lot about Jesus and I can't even remember the preacher's name. 
I really believe that what Paul is saying here is, if you think that I'm writing you this letter because you're hurting my feelings because I spent time with you and, and now, and now you, you've deserted me and, and I'm crying for me, he's saying, it's not about me. You've not injured me at all. Now, if we were studying all the way through Galatians, which you've been reading through it, you know that he's been pretty hard on them. He's been very sharp, if you will, in his tone. And it's believed that probably in these next verses that we're about to read is where Paul kind of, if you will, in the tone, not backing up from the truth, but he lightens up the tone as if to say, okay, I believe you've got the message. I believe I've been hard enough. Now, let's reminisce about some good things. And so notice what he does here that, that really is beautiful. He, he says here in 13, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And what is kind of humorous about that, he stated the truth. They know and we don't. You can go back and read Acts the 13th chapter and the 14th chapter and we don't know what he means by that. We assume what he means is that he was going to go in one direction and yet because of some kind of physical infirmity, some kind of sickness, he went into Galatia and we don't even know what the sickness was. A lot of scholars says they think that it's malaria. A lot of other scholars, which what, what we're about to read, they say, well, no, we think it has something to do with his eyes. But there was some kind of sickness that he entered into them and that's how they first met him but yet they still accepted him. Notice how he says this in 14. And he says, in my trial, see it was a difficult time for Paul. In my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. I need to learn this lesson tonight. And if this steps on our toes, we need to let it hurt and we need to change our ways. It is so easy to be drawn to men and women who are strong. And in the eyes of many people, sickness is weak, and unattractive. And Paul writes, and he says, I went through a trial. I was sick. And when I came into you, instead of you despising me and wanting to reject me and keep distance, you received me, and you didn't just receive me as a sick man. Oh, there's a sick stranger that's come into town. I guess somebody needs to take care of him. Who'll do that? He says, you came and took care of me like I was an angel of God. I don't know exactly what he means by that, but it sounds nice, doesn't it? I mean, when I think about in the scriptures, who was treated like an angel of God who was sick? Probably the same one that's coming to your mind came to my mind. Wouldn't that be maybe like the good Samaritan? You have the priest and Levi that they look on him, they just pass by the other side. Why? He's weak. There's nothing attractive about a man who's half dying. But here comes the good Samaritan by. It says that he had compassion upon him. And he cared for him. Maybe like you'd care for an angel of God. 
He didn't care for him at that moment only. He cared for him that night. And he didn't just care for him that night. He left instruction that he'd have further care and that he would pay the tab. Listen, Paul is making a powerful point here. And I think that it's leading up to a very powerful point for all of us. But I want you to stop and think right now, who is it that you reach out to? If it's only to your friends that are healthy enough to go shopping with you and go golfing with you and run around with you, because after all, that's kind of selfish. Oh, I love them as a friend. Why? They do everything I want to do. Really, what kind of friendship is that? What kind of friend are you? But what about when that person's sick and you go by their house every week? What about this person that's sick and you check on them continually? What about when that person's in a situation and condition that most people in this world, and especially in America, would say, that's not a very attractive condition. And yet, could it honestly be said by anyone that in their time of weakness, you treated them like an angel. Paul knows that they loved him because that's the way he met them, was them pouring out their love to him. Now, was it just some kind of proverbial phrase when he says, you would have plucked out your eyes for me? A lot of scholars think that that's simply what it was. But others say, no, we think there was something wrong with his eyes. And, and that's why they were saying that, that they loved him so much, they would have given their very own sight for him to have sight. Now, I can't help but see just a little humor in the fact that when he makes that statement there in verse 15, he says, for I bear witness for you that it is possible. It's kind of interesting that he's saying, I'm a witness that you would give your eyes for me. Anyway, that's, I don't know, that's just my humor in it. Usually you have to have eyes to be a witness. And, and so, but he was loved. And they knew, they knew that he loved them. And so he says, I'm afraid for you. You ought to be afraid for you too. You loved me and I love you too. Now this is where this second point and this third point coming together is really a challenge for all of us. Is then he says, I want to stand for the truth. And you need to stand for the truth too. Notice what he says in 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They, talking about those false teachers, they zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, meaning exclude you from Christ, that you may be zealous for them. Paul says, you know how much you love me? And you know how much I loved and cared for you? And now there's only one reason why you count me an enemy. It's because I tell you the truth. But he doesn't apologize for telling the truth. He doesn't say, well, I tell you what, here's the false teachers over here and you moved over there with them. You've left Christ. He doesn't say, I'll court you. I'll tell you like the false teachers, they courted you and they told you things that were lies. I'll court you and I'll tell you things that are lies to get you to come back. He says, no, no, I'll remain your enemy if I have to remain your enemy, but I will tell you the truth. 
And brethren, that's powerful. And we need to think about why it is that we like certain people. Listen, there's something weak about me and my faith and there's something weak about me as a person. If people can court me by telling me lies and I like to run with them. Will you stand and appreciate a friend who tells you the truth when it hurts? Or do you want someone who is not a real friend that will lie to you and make you feel good when you hurt? That's the test of who you are. And Paul says, I'll never be that friend that lies to you to get you to like me. What do you do when it's your family? What do you do when what you believe to be the word of God becomes an issue with a best friend? I'd like for us to close by reading a sobering passage in Matthew the 10th chapter. I don't plan on making many comments about this. I think from us seeing what Paul's already said, we just need to listen to the words of Jesus and, and really take and think on this. In Matthew the 10th chapter, Jesus says some very, very hard words. They're not that hard to understand, but they sure are hard to live when it comes into your family and my family. When it comes among our best friends, when it comes among coworkers that we love and respect greatly. In Matthew 10 and 34, do not think that I come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father. Don't just hear words. Think relationships here. A man against his father. A daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus' teachings? What are you going to do with Jesus' teaching when you devote your life to following Jesus and a friend becomes upset? A mother or father or son or daughter or daughter-in-law or son-in-law or mother-in-law or father-in-law. What are you going to do when they demand that you choose them? Who are you going to love more? Are you going to love Christ more? Or are you going to love them more? And Paul says in other words, I'll never try to be your friend by telling you a lie. If your life is not right with God, I'm afraid for you.
and you ought to be afraid for you too. You're in a congregation of people here that love you and a God that loves you more than anyone. What is it that we can do but realize as we try to encourage you, all we can do is tell you the truth. Our nature is we want people to tell us what we want to hear. But our stability and our faith and our hope is when we are told the truth. Tonight, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand and as